Church family, if you would open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 through 7, verse 10 is our passage for today. Uh, I'm going to read that. You can remain seated while I read. Um, The title of today's message is God's Response to Visible Faith. God's Response to Visible Faith. Again, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it's the Word of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks for behold i will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven everything that is on the earth shall die but i will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark you your sons your wife and your sons wives with you And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. These opening chapters of the book of Genesis, which we've been studying, truly serve as a foundation for the rest of God's word. They serve as a foundation for the rest of God's words. These chapters are not optional. Unfortunately, some people in our world today want these chapters of the Bible to be optional. 
They want to hold on to things like Jesus coming to save us, but they want to get rid of things like Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 or 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and so forth. But we rob ourselves if we fail to gain what from them what they have to teach us. It's the Word of God. So many of the great doctrines of the Christian faith trace their roots back to this book of beginnings. So many of the essential doctrines, uh, teachings that are fleshed out throughout the pages of Scripture find their origin in this book of origins. And we will see that this is clearly the case as we dive into the story of Noah. One of the great and essential doctrines of Christianity, which really just, shine, I think, shines forth brightly in the story of Noah, is the necessity of faith for salvation. The necessity of faith for salvation. Specifically, I think, we could take it a little bit further and say we learn this, that the truth that only visible faith will result in salvation shines forth brightly. It's not just any kind of faith, but it is visible faith. Which leads to salvation. And then as we remember that all Scripture, Paul says, all Scripture, he says this in the New Testament, about all Scripture, at that point it was the Old Testament that he was referring to, the New Testament was still being written, all Scripture is about Jesus. All Scripture makes us wise for faith in Jesus Christ. So as we remember that, then we can say that we should learn this very important truth from this section in the story of Noah. And it's this, escape from God's wrath comes only through visible faith in Jesus. Escape from God's wrath comes only through visible faith in Jesus. Church, I want you to know that there is a faith that does not save. There is faith that does not save. You can place your faith in objects which have no power to save you from the wrath of God. And that is faith that will not save you. We'll really talk some more about that, uh, Lord willing, next week. But you can also claim to have faith in the right object, if I, if I can say it that way. You can claim to have faith in God, but if that faith does not result in obedience to God, then Scripture tells us it's not genuine saving faith. The only faith that saves is a faith in God's promise of salvation that is visible to God. A faith that is visible to God and visible to others because it is then characterized by a life of obedience to the commands of God. Now, last week we ended with chapter 6, verse 8. You could glance your eyes back there for a moment. Despite all the wickedness in the world, there was this man named Noah, and he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That verse served as a conclusion to the previous section, but it also serves to kind of whet our appetite for uh, the section that follows. You'll notice for the third time um, now in our study of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, for the third time, we have this phrase, these are the generations of. And if you'll think back to uh, when we were studying in chapter 2, I told you that that phrase, these are the generations of, serves as section markers in the book of Genesis. We'll see this several times throughout the book of Genesis, and it serves as section markers. In chapter 2, verse 4, just to remind us, we read this. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we read, These are the generations of Noah. And then what follows is a description of Noah, a description of the state of the world, and God's response 
to both the corruption of the world and God's response to the visible fate of Noah. That's kind of an a, a outline, if you will, for, for what we see in this passage of Scripture. All of this, the entire account of Noah and the flood, is not only meant to teach us that this was an historical event, which it absolutely was, where God brought a global destruction upon the earth while rescuing one man and his family, but it is also meant to point us to Jesus. And it's meant to point us to Him so that we will have a visible faith in Jesus. I want to share with you four truths from this passage today. The passage opens with a description of Noah as being a righteous man, blameless in his generation. We're told that Noah walked with God, and we are told that Noah had three sons, Ham and Jephthah. And this description of Noah sets up then a contrast between him and the rest of the world. You have this, this, this description of Noah, verse 9, uh, righteous man, blameless in his generation, walking with God. And then there's this, this great difference between this man Noah and the rest of the world. But look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I want to start with the state of the world. I want to start with the corruption. First truth I want you to see is this. God sees the corruption produced by rebellion. God sees the corruption produced by rebellion. You can use the word sin there, whatever, whatever you want to use for that word rebellion or sin. In a moment we're going to talk about what faith in God produces, but first I want you to see what a lack of faith in God produces. A lack of faith in God, rebellion against God produces something. Remember, the opposite of faith is rebellion. If you do, if, a lot of times we don't like, we don't think, oh, this person is, is a rebel against God's rebellion, living in rebellion against God. I mean, that sounds like the really, really bad people. But every person, even someone who's trying really hard to be a good person to earn their salvation, is in rebellion against God because they're not receiving God's way of salvation. And we saw in verses 5 through 7 that the earth was full of wickedness, but here God uses a different word to describe the state of the earth. He uses this word that's translated, could be translated corrupt or maybe ruin. You see, wickedness, rebellion against God produces something, and what it produces is corruption. It produces ruin. God is looking at the world that He's made, and He not only sees the wickedness in human hearts, but He sees all that that wickedness is doing to the world that He's made. It has corrupted it. It's ruining it. When I think about something being corrupted, I often think about food that is spoiled. I don't know, I don't know why, but when I think about corruption, that, 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 that corrupting of something, I think about food, maybe because I like to eat, but I think about food that's, that's becoming spoiled. It once was good, was good for something, but now it is corrupted and it's, it's gotta be thrown out because it's lost its goodness. When, when I was in college, I think, I think I was a freshman. We had a little, me and my roommate had a little, one of those little refrigerators in our room, you know. And, um, I used to keep some, I used, I used to eat breakfast in my room. I, I like breakfast. I don't, I hardly ever skip breakfast. And, um, and so at that time I drank orange juice every morning. So I kept a carton of orange juice in that little refrigerator. And, um, I don't think my roommate ever drank it. I, I think it was just me. Uh, but we had been gone, I don't know if it was spring break or a long weekend or something, and I got back to the dorm room and, um, and, and I opened up that jug of orange juice and I, the smell hit me. And it was, it was horrible. It was nasty. I knew, I, I, I knew that had gone bad. Right, it had become corrupted, and so the good thing to do uh, was to throw it away. 
Except I didn't do the good thing. I stuck it back in the refrigerator and waited on my roommate to get back to the room. And uh, when he got back, I, I said, hey, I said, why don't you try that orange juice in there? I have no clue why he said yes. I mean, that sounds like you're getting set up. I never told him to try the orange juice. But for whatever reason, he said, okay. And uh, he poured him a little glass of that uh, orange juice and took a big old gulp of it. And uh, his face just went crazy. And he took off like lightning out of the room, down the hall to the bathroom, spit it out. Um, of course, I'm laughing the whole time. I deserved for him to spit it in my face. Uh, but he was nice and he didn't do that. Uh, he made it to the bathroom. Why did he do that, though? Why did he have to spit it out? It's because it had become corrupted. It was spoiled. It, it had become ruined. And friends, that's what sin, that's what rebellion against God produces. That's what God sees when he sees sin. It's nasty. It's horrible. It's corrupt. It is gross in his sight. Three times in verse 11 through 12, we see this word describing the earth and all flesh. All flesh had been corrupted. The reason I want to point out this word of, of sin and, 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 um, and, and corruption, um, sorry, I meant to say three times in this passage we see the word corrupt in these couple of verses. We also see the earth and all flesh several times. But we see this word corrupt, 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 or ruin, ruin, ruin. And I think God wants to let us in a little bit on what he sees when he sees sin. We often forget that the end result of sin is corruption. It's ruin. Our enemy, Satan, comes dressed as an angel of light and he wants us to think that sin will not bring harm. He wants us to think that sin will lead to good things for us. That it will lead to pleasure. That that's what awaits us when we choose to ignore and reject God and His Word. But we've got to, we got to read God's Word and understand what God says about sin. That sin always corrupts. It corrupts our hearts, our minds, our bodies. It corrupts our families. It corrupts our communities. It is not good for us. The other day, my wife and I were watching a movie that was popular when we were kids. And, um, and we went back and we were like, let's watch this movie. And most of the cast in that movie were kids at that time. It was a movie about kids. And, uh, and so we watched the movie and, and, uh, after it, I just decided to look up some of those cast members and, um, and see who they were and kind of what, what was going on. And there was one particular cast member who would, who was uh, maybe a little bit older than, than me and my wife. And, and, uh, and, and I saw a picture of him and he was, he was unrecognizable. He looked 20 years older. Now, there's nothing wrong with than he act than he was today. There's nothing wrong with looking older when it's a result of age. But this wasn't a result of age. He was about 40, and he looked like he was about 60 or 70. It's because he had chosen since the time of that movie a lifestyle of of drugs, and it had completely corrupted his body. He almost didn't even look human. Now, thankfully, I read, I have, my heart broke for him, and I, and I read a little bit more, and, and um, since that picture had been taken, he had got some help, and he started to make some right choices, and, 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 and he was looking better, he was looking more human. But my point is that that sin, which looked good in the moment to him, it was physically corrupting his body. But even when the corruption is not as visible as that, it's still there and it is still real. For instance, the sin of pornography corrupts our minds in very deep and destructive ways. The sin of bitterness and anger corrupts our ability to relate to others and destroys relationships. The sin of greed corrupts our work ethic. 
It robs us of the joy of generosity. I'm just, I'm just plucking out a few sins. All sin corrupts. Rebellion against God always produces corruption in our lives. And God sees it. He sees the corruption. And He detests it. It is not pleasurable to Him. And that spoiled, nasty orange juice, the only thing you can do with it is spew it out. What has become corrupted must be destroyed. And that leads us to truth number, truth number two. God responds to rebellious corruption with destruction. So first state we see, state of the world is corruption, and we see God's response to that corruption. What must He do? It must be destroyed. We saw this truth in general terms in the previous passage. But now we see God give more specifics. God is a holy God, and so it would be wrong for Him to allow corruption to be left unchecked. We just sang that song a few moments ago. Holy, holy, holy. A holy God must spew out corruption. Sin must be punished. Corruption must be destroyed. Verse 13 says this, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then skip ahead, if you will, to verse 17. God says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God is going to bring destruction. And that destruction is going to come in the form of a global flood. What is interesting in this passage is that the same word translated corrupt or ruin in verses 11 through 12 that we see three times there is used to describe what God is going to do in response. The word for corrupt, the word for destroy in the Hebrew are the very same word. In fact, some translations go ahead and show us this by translating it the same way throughout the passage. You can say it this way. God is going to respond to the ruin of the earth, that is the ruin caused by sin, by ruining the earth. He's going to respond to the ruin that he sees, sees with ruin. In other words, God is going to give the people exactly what they have asked for through their sinful rebellion. See, that the punishment of God is just. Whenever God doles out punishment for sin, he's only giving us what we have asked for. He's not going to punish anyone here who doesn't deserve it. Whenever we see God pour out His wrath, it's always because the choices of humanity have called for God's wrath. For instance, the actor who chose a lifestyle of drugs, that, that choice was, was an invitation for the corruption that came to his body. The person who chooses to look at explicit images is asking for his mind to be corrupted. The person who chooses to withhold forgiveness and be bitter towards someone is asking for corrupted relationships. The person who chooses to love money is asking for a corrupted work ethic, a corrupted, corrupt handling of his or her finances. The, the husband or wife who chooses to engage in marital unfaithfulness is, is asking for a corrupted marriage. So what we're doing when we sin, we're, simply, we're, we're asking for ruin to come into our lives. And so when God responds appropriately, He's merely giving us what we ask for. And ultimately, all of us, because we're all sinners, are asking for ultimate corruption to be poured out upon us. We choose a life of ruin, and therefore, we're choosing for God to ruin us. 
God's response to our rebellious corruption is exactly what we've asked for by rejecting him and his ways. He says, you don't want me? Okay, you won't have me. I, I, am, I, I am the author of life. We'll see in just a minute. So you don't want me, then you don't get life. Because life is found in me. That's the way God responds to corruption. With corruption. With ruin. It's the just punishment of the guilty. But God doesn't respond to everyone in Genesis 6 this way, does He? God doesn't respond to everyone in Genesis 6 this way. And that's because God sees something else besides corruption. He sees something else besides sin and rebellion and the corruption that that brings. God also sees the obedience that is produced by faith. And praise God that He sees this. He sees the obedience that is produced by faith. That's truth number three for us today. God sees the obedience produced by faith. God sees the corruption in the world. He's going to respond to that corruption with what corruption deserves. Death. Destruction. But He also sees the obedience produced by faith. Now we were introduced to Noah back even before chapter 6. We were introduced to him in chapter 5 verse 29. Where we were told that Lamech from the line of Seth had a son whom he named Noah. Then in chapter 6, verse 8, we learn that Noah was shown grace by God. Noah was the recipient of God's sovereign grace in his life. God uh, God showed favor to this man named Noah. And now we learn about Noah's character. Two times in chapters 6 and 7, we are told that Noah was righteous. We see that in chapter 6, verse uh, 9, and then we see it again in chapter 7, verse 1. We are also told that Noah was blameless. We are told that Noah walked with God, and we are told four times in chapters 6 through 8, a little beyond what we read earlier, but if you include all of that, we are, we are told four times that Noah did as the Lord commanded him, which means he was obedient. Now, before we go any further, first thing we, we have to make sure we understand is that this description of Noah as righteous and blameless walking with God doesn't mean he was perfect. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about Noah being shown grace by God. Noah finding favor with the Lord was not because he was a perfect man. Noah was not perfect. He was a descendant of Adam. He was not perfect. But this does mean, this being called righteous and blameless, does mean that he believed in God, he trusted God's Word, and out of that faith he sought to obey God, to walk with God. Now, one of our key words today is the word faith. You see that even in the title of the message, visible faith. That's what we're talking about, God's response to visible faith. And you're not going to see the word faith in this passage. But here's what we do see. We see in this passage the evidence of faith. We see faith on display. You see, when you have faith in God, you take God at His word. You don't question Him. You don't doubt that what He says is good and true. Like Adam and Eve did back in the garden, right? They questioned God. They doubted that what God said was true and good. When you have faith in the Lord, you don't do that. When you have faith in God, you take God at His Word. And when you take God at His Word, you do whatever He says. Genuine faith in the Lord always leads to genuine obedience to the Lord. This is a very important truth for us to see and understand and know today. Noah did not pretend to believe in God. His life revealed that he had a deep Dependence upon God. 
that his faith was in the Lord. Though the word faith is not seen, faith is very visible in this passage. Noah took God at His word. Noah obeyed God's commands. Noah walked with God. Think about the setting in which he walked with God in the midst of a people who were completely corrupted. That's not an easy thing to do. To walk in the opposite direction of everyone around you, and yet that's what Noah is doing. The writer of Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, note this, not that comes by works, but righteousness that comes through faith. It's the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Noah's obedience that we see here, we see here was flowing from his faith in God. And Noah's faith in God, we could say, produced visible obedience. Noah's faith would have been obviously visible to those around him. Right? Hammer, hammer, hammer. Saul, Saul. Noah, what are you doing <laughs> building this giant boat? Why are you doing this? Because God told me to. Visible faith. It was visible to those around him. They watched Noah day after day construct a large boat. They would have listened as Noah, who Peter called, the Apostle Peter called Noah a herald of righteousness. A herald is someone who announces news. He was called a herald of righteousness. So they not only watched him as he built this boat, they listened as he proclaimed a reason. He proclaimed righteousness, a herald of faith in God. Noah had visible faith. And friend, that's the only faith that counts. It's the only faith that counts. James, the brother of Jesus and a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, wrote about this to Christians. Read about this in the book of James. would encourage you to do that maybe this week. But he writes this, that faith without works is dead. He says that anybody can believe in God. That is, believe facts about God, believe that God exists, believe that he does certain things and doesn't do other things. And even James goes on to say that even the demons believe God. They believe in God in that way. Even the demons believe in God. And then he challenges the Christians to show their faith by what they do. Now James is not saying that our works save us. But he is saying that there is no such thing as saving faith that does not lead to a life of good works. There's no such thing as faith that saves that does not lead to a life lived in obedience to the God who has saved us. Let me put it to you as plainly as I know how. You can say that you have faith in Jesus, but if your life does not look like a follower of Jesus, then James is telling us that your belief is no better than Satan's belief. Now let me follow that up with a question, in case that doesn't shake you a little bit. Do you know where the belief of Satan and his demons is going to land them? In the pit of hell for all of eternity. Where they will be ruined... Just as the people in Noah's day were ruined. That's where wrong faith, wrong belief leads to. It's the same final destination of all who have pretend faith. Four times in this passage we are told that Noah did exactly what God commanded him. What the Lord was commanding him to do, it made no sense. 
unless you believed God. It made no sense from a worldly standpoint. This is the epitome of walking by faith. Unless you believe that God was the all-powerful, sovereign creator of the world whose word was to be trusted and who was worthy of our deepest affection and obedience, even if we didn't understand it, unless you believe that, what Noah was doing made no sense. But Noah did believe that. I think the repetition in this passage is meant to draw us to this point of visible faith. Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter 6, verse 9. As God had commanded Noah. And chapter 7, verse 16. As God had commanded him. There's no ifs, no ands, no buts. We don't see Noah arguing with God. God speaks and Noah obeys. Friends, that is genuine faith. It's not his works that saved him, but the faith that led to his salvation produced genuine obedience to God. That's faith in action. It's visible faith. It was not merely visible to those around him. It was visible to God. Chapter 7, verse 1. We read this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And that's a gift of grace. Remember, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. So that's, a, that's God bestowing grace upon Noah. But, but that's a response here in this passage to Noah's faith in the Lord. I've seen this. I've seen your life being produced by faith. God sees the corruption. He sees our corruption and He destroys the corruption. But God also sees those who have genuine, visible faith. And by His grace, God responds in the opposite manner to those who have faith. Real, genuine faith that leads to obedience. What is that response? Well, that's our fourth truth today. Truth number four, God responds to obedient faith with provision of life. God responds to obedient faith with provision of life. Listen to me. If you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus and God's plan of salvation, you're corrupted. God responds to corruption with destruction. But God responds to visible faith, obedient faith, with provision of life. Unlike the rest of the world, Noah along with his family are going to escape the flood. That's the good news here. They're going to escape the flood. We even see that word, escape, here in this passage. They would be spared from the judgment. They would be given life rather than death. And this life, this escape from God's judgment is going to come from God. God's going to be the one who provides this life. Yes, Noah had faith, but faith only brings rescue if God wills and acts to provide that rescue. And God does that here. There's really four ways that we see God providing life. For Noah, this man of obedient faith. Just notice, notice him with me. First, he, he gives him life-giving instructions. God provides Noah with life-giving instructions. God tells Noah exactly what he needs to do in order to be saved from the coming flood. God doesn't say, oh, I'm going to save you if you can figure it out. Good luck. No, he, he tells him he, gives him, he gives him the instructions that he needed. God says in verses 14 through 16, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make, uh, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. Length is going to be 300 cubits, breadth 50 cubits, height 30 cubits. I mean, tells them all the dimensions. Make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above, set the door in the side, 
Make it with lower, second, and third decks. And then you skip on to uh, verses 19 through 20. He says this, Then of every living thing of all flesh, you're going to bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. Bring male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds. Animals according to their kinds. Every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. So we see God providing life-giving instructions to Noah. He's got to build this vessel, Right? The dimensions are about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, about 45 feet tall. It's the dimensions. It's going to have a roof. It's going to have three levels. It's going to have a door. and It's going to have a sealant to keep the water out. That's a good thing when there's going to be a flood, right? It's exactly what Noah needed in order to escape the coming judgment. And God also provided instructions to preserve animal life. It's going to, hey, a male, you need a male and a female to come into the ark. Uh, male and female of every kind, we're going to preserve animal life on the earth. So we see God giving life-giving instructions. We also see God's provision of life-giving covenants. We not only see Him giving instructions, but we see Him giving covenant. see Him making covenant with Noah. Look at verse 18. After saying that everything on the earth shall die, God says, But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. This is the first time in the Bible that we've seen the word covenant. I guarantee you it's not the last time that we've seen this word covenant. This is a major theme throughout all of Scripture. We're not going to talk a lot about it today, but we will talk about it in coming weeks. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. So what, what, what is covenant? What does that mean? We can think of covenant maybe this way. God's promise to preserve life by remaining in relationship with those who are included in the covenant. God's promise to preserve life by remaining in relationship with those who are included in the covenant. If you're in a relationship with God, you have life because He is life. If you're not in a relationship with God, you don't have life. God's covenant is His promise to be in relationship with those with whom He makes the covenant. Whenever you see God make a, make a covenant, you know that whoever he makes that, he makes that covenant with is, is on the receiving end of a promise of life that God never will break. And third, we see God's provision of life-giving food. Remember, we're looking at the ways that God is just giving life here. Life-giving instructions, life-giving covenant. We see life-giving food. We see Him looking out for the physical well-being of Noah and his family and the animals. In order for Noah and his family to escape his judgment, they don't only need protection from the flood, they also need food to live off of while this flood is taking place. God says in chapter 6, verse 21, Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Just, just, just pause for a minute. Just notice God's care and concern for those people who belong to him. Down to the very detail of the food that they are going to eat. Noah has everything necessary so that he can escape death during the flood. The level of care God shows to those who walk with him truly is amazing. Maybe you just need to be encouraged by that today. God's level of care for us is deep. He doesn't miss a detail. When it's all said and done, God alone gets the credit for this salvation. I mean, God's the one that's even reminding him, make sure you bring enough food. And God's obviously the one who provided that food for them. And then, a fourth way that we see God's provision of life here is He provides life-giving worship. We see God providing life-giving worship. And this last one might seem a little strange here in this passage. You say, well, I don't see worship going on anywhere here. 
Well, not yet, but preparation for worship. I want you to think about this for a second. God created us to worship. Real life is found in the worship of our Creator, God. That's what God created us to do. We are most alive when we are living in worship of Him. If we try to live life without worshiping God, the life we live will leave us deeply unsatisfied. We might have lots of stuff. We might uh, look like we have a high quality of life in the eyes of the world. But life that is absent of God-directed worship is a life that is wasted and unfulfilled. We see that all throughout the pages of Scripture. We know that to be true in our own lives. And worship, so for God created us to worship, worship requires sacrifice. The only worship God accepts comes through sacrifice. And so God ensures that Noah is able to have true life even after the flood. He ensures he's able to have this true life by making sure he has what he needs in order to engage in genuine worship after the flood is over. Look at verse uh, chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. God says, take with you seven, not two, but seven pairs of all clean animals. The male and his mate and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I've made I will blot out from the face of the ground. We often only think of one pair of each kind of animal boarding the ark, but actually God tells Noah to take seven pairs of the clean animals. Now, why is this? It could be a couple of reasons God said this, but I think one of the clearest reasons is so that Noah would have sacrifice when he got off the ark. God would only accept clean animals as sacrifice. So God's making sure He's providing Noah with life-giving worship. We are created to worship, and he's making sure Noah is able to do that when he steps off of the ark. And when we get to the end of chapter 8, we'll see that that's exactly what Noah does. He offers a sacrifice of worship. But notice that God provided this life-giving worship for Noah. He told him to take what he would need on the ark so that his life would be filled with the joy of knowing and worshiping the one true God. I think this passage makes it abundantly clear Church family, God responds to obedient faith with provision of life. Provision of life. Verse 6 and 7 of chapter 7 says this, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went, went with him, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Friend, there's only two types of people in the world. Those who are living in the corruption that comes through their rebellion against God and those who are living in obedience to God because of their faith in Him and in His plan of salvation. There's also only two responses that God has to all the people in the world. Those who live in rebellion against God and die in rebellion against God, God punishes them with eternal destruction. Those who have visible faith, God blesses with Same thing he blessed Noah with. Escape from destruction. It's not popular to say this, but it's true. God's wrath is real. God is a wrathful God. He is holy, 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 which means He must ruin all that has been ruined. His wrath is real. Verse 10 ends with these words. The waters of the flood came upon the earth. This wasn't just kind of of a little test run. 
This wasn't just like, oh, just, just joking around with you. No, this was real. The waters of the flood came upon the earth. This wasn't an imaginary flood. Neither is the wrath of God that is coming upon all who have been corrupted by sin. And I want you to know today that God has provided us with life-giving instructions so that we know how to escape His coming wrath. The instructions are called the Gospel of Jesus. The Gospel is the good news that though our sin has ruined us and therefore we ought to be ruined by God's wrath, God sent His Son Jesus to take that ruin of God's wrath upon Himself and the cross. Jesus was ruined in our place. He died on the cross for our sin, but, but because He's God, He didn't stay ruined. He defeated the consequence of sin. He defeated death and destruction. And now all who believe upon Jesus Christ, who have visible faith in Jesus, are too rescued from that certain death and given the gift of everlasting life with Jesus. The response God is looking for today is faith. But not just some pretend faith, but a faith that says, I'm taking God at His Word. That I am a sinner, just like He says. That Jesus is a Savior, just like God says. And that God is able to save me through faith in Jesus Christ. Just like God says that He will do. God will enter into a covenant with me. A promise to give me life forever and ever and ever. And so today I trust in Christ. But let me remind you, it is a faith that changes us. So perhaps today you are corrupted because of your sin, living in that corruption, whether it's very visible to those around you or not very visible, but you know and God knows inside you that your heart is corrupted with sin. And today you need to trust in Christ and receive salvation. You need to do that. You need to believe in Christ alone. There's also a challenge here for those of us who have trusted in Jesus. Is your faith visible? Listen, obedience matters in the Christian life. Our faith is to produce good works. And so perhaps there's an area in our lives, Christians, where we're not walking in step with the Lord. That God would use this passage, the life of Noah, to remind us, as the Lord commanded, so Noah did. Can the same be true? The same be said of you and me. Is the same true of you and me as Christians today? As the Lord says, so we do. May we respond in obedience to the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Your Word is clear. It is not hidden in mystery. You've made it known to us through Your Spirit. God, corruption because of sin is real. Your wrath towards corruption is real. Faith in Jesus can really save us. And your response to faith is escape, rescue from your wrath. So God, I just pray that we would all for just a moment evaluate our lives in light of your word. God, if there's someone here today who needs to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus for salvation, I pray that they would do that right now in their hearts. And then at the close of the service, God, I pray they would tell someone, they would come and tell me or tell someone here that today you have saved them. 
because of your grace pouring into their life through their faith in Jesus. And God, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, God, would we repent of any wicked way in us? And God, would you remind us that the faith that leads to salvation is also a faith that leads to obedient living. God, may our response be life-giving worship. For you have provided the sacrifice, and his name is Jesus. And it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.